Well, we've gathered today to worship our living God. And during this Advent season, we've been making our way through the prophetic words of Isaiah. And Isaiah is 66 chapters long, and it really covers a, a long, extensive period of time uh, from before when the Assyrians came in and conquered Israel to after the Babylonian exile. And when you look at the book of Isaiah, it's actually broken up into three different sections. We have the first 39 chapters that deal with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And then as you move into the next section, you hear about the exile and the people of Israel being in exile. And then as we move into verse chapters 56 through 66, we see Israel returning back home. And the prophet Isaiah talks and speaks of all these different generations and what's happening in all of that. In the text we're going to read this morning from Isaiah 64, we get this glimpse of Isaiah wondering, God, will you ever show your face? Will we ever get to see you? Now, I remember years and years and years ago before the advent of Zoom and this great technology, FaceTime and the WhatsApp, that we would say to people, we need to have a face-to-face meeting. We, we need to sit down in a room together and talk about these things. Now, of course, we can meet face-to-face and be on computer screens and be all around the world now. But Isaiah is asking this basic question of saying, God, can we meet face-to-face? Will you show up and let us see you? Because the people have experienced all these difficult times and they're longing to know that God is with them. And as we're going to look into our text this morning from Isaiah chapter 64, you'll notice the language that it's tense. It's this sense of saying, God, have you turned away from us? God, will you ever see us? God, will you ever restore us? And Isaiah recognizes his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of his people. So listen in now as we read from Isaiah chapter 64. We're going to read the first nine verses. And Isaiah writes, O God, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down and make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. 
Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Isaiah says, God, that you would rend the heavens, that that you would show up, that, that you would do what you have done in years past. Then people would know that you are real. But then Isaiah does something else interesting. And what Isaiah does is he begins to recognize the brokenness of humanity, his own sinfulness, his own issues, the nations of Israel's issues. And he realizes that there is a problem. And the problem is humanity. The problem is you and me. I realize when I quote a quote three times in one year, it has probably become one of my favorite quotes. And this quote from Russell Moore, definitely in the year of 2023, was one that I resonate a lot with, especially as we think about how we do evangelism and how we reach people in the name of Jesus. But Russell Moore said this, he said, for too long we have called unbelievers to invite Jesus into your life. Jesus does not want to be in your life, he continues. Your life is a wreck. Jesus calls you into his life, and his life is not boring or purposeless or static. It's wild and exhilarating and unpredictable. You see, there's truth in this statement that our lives are a mess. And then what Jesus wants to do and the arrival of Jesus, what it does for us is he invites us into his life, into something great, into something wonderful, into something that is not static or boring. And what an incredible gift that is for us. And so Isaiah is saying, Lord, please show up. But there's this problem and it's called sin. It's a problem the Apostle Paul struggled with when he said, even the good that I want to do is not good and the evil I want to avoid is what I actually end up doing. And yet the Bible reminds us again and again and again that God is going to show up, that that's what this Christmas message is all about. And Isaiah, as he continues on in this section, then he starts talking about, God, remember that you are our father, that you are the potter, that you are the one who has created us, you are the one who has made us, and God, would you please show up? And then we get to the gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then we read these glorious words that the word became flesh and dwelt in our midst. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only son of God, full of grace and truth. God showed up. This is the gift of Christmas. This is the gift that comes along with the hope and comfort and everything else that God provides for us. God literally shows up. In John chapter 12, there's an interesting scenario that happens as Jesus is continuing and he's preaching and he's teaching and some outsiders, some Greeks show up and they want to see Jesus. We're in the gospel of John, the 12th chapter, reading from verses 20 through 26. No, there were some Greeks among those who went to worship at the festival. That means they're in Jerusalem and they all go up to Jerusalem for the festival. And they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with a request. 
Sir, they said, we want to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. So you get the sense here, they want to see Jesus. They're these outsiders. They've heard about the work of God. They've heard about what Christ is doing, the miracles he's performing, the way in which he teaches, and they want to see him. Verse 23, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now, I want you to notice what happened in this text here. These outsiders, these Greeks, they go and they say, we want to see Jesus. And how does Jesus respond to that? If someone says, hey, I want to see you, we say, great, let's meet, let's connect, let's, let's meet face to face. But what does Jesus do? He uses that opportunity when they say, we want to see you, to start with this, this sentence where he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. Now, if you're thinking about the Gospel of John, you will recall that very early in the Gospel of John, in the second chapter, Jesus is at a wedding. and They run out of wine. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, walks up to him and says, son, you have to fix this. They've run out of wine. How can we have a party? And what does Jesus say? He says, my time has not yet come. But now here in John chapter 12, Jesus knows that his time has come. And so instead of saying, I want to meet these, these individuals, he starts talking about what it is that he is going to do, that he is going to give his life, that in order for there to be new life, he must give his life, that a seed must die in the ground in order for there to be life. And so even as these outsiders are trying to find Jesus and to learn from Jesus, he's saying to them, understand very clearly what might happen if you choose to follow me. Your very life might be required of you. But his time is coming. And very soon he will go to the cross. So if we keep reading in that section in John chapter 12, we skip over to verse 32. And Jesus has one more thing to say about this. And he says, and when I, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And what is Jesus doing there? He's saying, and he's pointing to the cross that one day he will be lifted up and he will draw people to himself. It happens actually at the birth of Jesus as well. If you remember, when Christ is born, the shepherds appear. They tell of the good news, of great joy, of all that has happened. And what do the shepherds do? They are drawn in by that story and they go and see the infant Jesus. 
because Jesus draws people to himself. It's not just about seeing Jesus, but it's also about being drawn toward Jesus. That that is what he longs for and that is what he wants from our lives. But what we must remember remember is that the cradle and the cross always inform each other. It's not just about the cradle and it's not just about the cross. But there is this sense that the one who is born for us is going to suffer, is going to give his life so that we might have life and have life abundant. The cross and the cradle help to inform us about who this Jesus truly is and that his great desire is to draw us closer and closer to him, to not just see him, but to be in relationship with him. So the author of the Gospel of John also writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I want to look at one more text as we begin to wrap up. Because he writes this then to a church, a small church community, where they believe that people are struggling in their faith. They're not really sure if the Messiah is who he says he is. And so John writes again to speak of who Jesus truly is. We're in 1 John, the first chapter, reading verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, notice this language is very similar to the language of Isaiah, that, language, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This first letter of John harkens back to the beginning of the gospel of John, this idea of in the beginning, which harkens us back then to the first chapter of Genesis, Genesis, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. And John is trying to track all of this to help us to see that when we see Jesus, when we are drawn to Jesus, everything changes in our lives. And John says, I have been a witness of this. I've seen it and I believe it. You see, we don't have to have it all figured out. We have our questions just like Isaiah did. We wonder, God, why don't you show up in a powerful way and fix this or fix that or bring peace? We ask those sorts of questions and we don't have it all figured out just as John didn't have it all figured out. But he says, I have been a witness. I've been drawn in to this family of faith and family of believers. Because he says, God has expressed his love in this child, Jesus, in this person of Jesus. It's not just talking about love. It's seeing love acted out. And so that is why I think as John wraps up that first part of his letter, 
And he says, let us make, so then let us make our joy complete. May our joy be complete by recognizing what it is that God has done for us. Karl Barth, when he wrote his commentary on the letter of Philippians, he had this to say about, because joy is used so often in that letter to the church at Philippi. He says, in the letter of Philippians, joy is a defiant nevertheless. That to the church at Philippi, no matter what anxiety, no matter what worry they were experiencing, Bart would say, as the Apostle Paul wrote that letter, he would say, joy is God's defiant nevertheless. And this Advent season, as we've looked at these texts from Isaiah, I get this sense that God keeps saying, nevertheless. Even though we struggle, even though we walk through difficult times, even though we lose hope, lose faith, lose our confidence, God says, nevertheless, I am with you and I am for you. I pray that we will consider today and this week what it is that we can do to draw closer to the God, to draw closer to Jesus, the one who was born for our sake, the one who was lifted up for our sake. Pray with me, please. Lord, show us today what it is that we can do to draw closer to you, to not simply see you, to not simply speak about you, but to actually move closer to you, to step forward in faith, knowing that you are Emmanuel, God with us. Amen.